Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. So, Greg, we've entered the SCOTUS opinion season with the justices dropping five opinions on Thursday, May 11th. By my count, that leaves 39 cases for the justices to get out before the end of the term, which typically happens the last week of June. So it's a heavy lift, but not impossible. Uh, Let's talk about the new cases that we got. And let's just get this one out of the way, Greg. I mean, national pork producers versus Ross, which I'm calling a five to four decision. But who really knows? Greg, what what happened? What What is this? I would also call it five to four. Kimberly, this is one of these cases that is both really simple and really complicated. Um, California has a new law that basically says hog farmers, they have to keep pregnant pigs in a place where they have a fair amount of space. The pork industry challenged the law saying it's going to cost us a gazillion dollars and it violates something called the Dormant Commerce Clause. And the Dormant Commerce Clause is sort of this doctrine that says because the Constitution gives Congress power over interstate commerce, the flip side of that means that states can't do things like discriminate against out-of-state commerce. And so the question is basically, does this California law uh, discriminate against out-of-state commerce or something like that? And the Supreme Court in what I think is a five to four decision uh, said uh, the pork industry cannot challenge this law based on the dormant commerce clause. Four justices in partial dissent said they would have at least given the the industry a chance to to make their argument uh, at, at the Ninth Circuit for why the lawsuit should be allowed to go forward. The summary of this decision and the disposition line are complicated as all get out. Uh, The core holding that this lawsuit gets thrown out, there are five justices on that. The rationale is kind of all over the map. And you had, and one of the things that's always fun about the Dormant Commerce Clause is you had some strange bedfellows in this. So you had four justices. Let me see if I can get get them right. Gorsuch, Thomas, Sotomayor, and Kagan saying, hey, this law doesn't have any substantial burden on interstate commerce. End of end of case, basically. Uh, it, it shouldn't go forward. Of course, it says a lot more in his opinion. And then you had another justice, Barrett, who said, no, actually, I think it does have a have a a an impact on interstate commerce. But there's no way for us to sort of balance that impact on interstate commerce with California's moral opposition to putting pregnant pigs in confined spaces. Courts can't do this, so this this claim gets thrown out. It kind of remains to be seen how much of an impact it has more broadly. I think it probably stands for the notion that a st- if a state passes a law because it has a moral opposition to something and it does have some some downstream effects um, out of state, you probably can't press a dormant commerce clause uh, claim against that. And that could be could be significant in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about, you know, the possibility of states sort of using their own state laws to regulate what others do, you could see where that could lead to if the if the standard is moral objection to get you out of federal court. So should be fun to see how that spins out. Thank you for explaining what they did, because you, you, you always love it when you see five opinions in a case. <laughs> and you know it's going to be just crystal clear. 
Yeah, a, a shout out to the reporter of decisions who actually made it quite pretty simple in in, in the, the syllabus at the beginning. Um, hey, so we also got a pair of cases that hit on uh, some popular themes at the court recently: Santos Zacaria versus Garland and Financial Oversight Board versus CPI. Why don't you tell us about those? Right. So, um, as you suggested, these cases both involve issues that the justices have tackled in a lot of other cases recently. The first, Santos Zacaria, is the latest effort by the justices to sort out jurisdictional rules from merely claims processing rules. So jurisdictional rules are very strict, depriving the court of the ability to hear a dispute. But claims processing rules have more flexibility. They allow judges to consider issues of fairness and such. The court has really set a high bar for Congress uh, when it wants to make a rule jurisdictional. And in Justice Jackson's unanimous decision, she actually noted that the court hadn't found a rule that it thought needed to be jurisdictional um, since implementing that high bar. So here, the justices said that a rule requiring non-citizens to exhaust their claims with the federal immigration agency before bringing those issues to court is not a jurisdictional rule. And that means the transgender woman at the heart of this case can continue to press her claim that she should be allowed to stay in the U.S., Um, because she will be persecuted based on her gender identity if returned to Guatemala. And then in the second case, Financial Oversight Board, this involves another high bar for Congress, Um, this one dealing with the waiver of sovereign immunity. So similar to the rule for jurisdictional versus claims processing rules, uh, the court has said Congress has to be very clear if it wants to waive immunity for a government entity. And it says Congress didn't clear that hurdle um, with regard to the board overseeing Puerto Rico's financial crisis. And that means a local media organization can't sue to get documents from the board. All right. And finally, Greg, we got a pair of cases where the court continued to pull back on public corruption charges, overruling two convictions. Um, What happened in those cases? Yeah. So so as you said, two cases, uh, both involve people, one case, clearly a private citizen, and the other case, somebody who was arguably a, a private citizen, not a, a, a government official. The, the, the second one, uh, probably the more important and going to be the more talked about of the two cases, involves a guy named uh, Joseph Prococo, who was a top aide to Andrew Cuomo. And the key question in that case was he had gone to work for Cuomo's campaign and was not actually working in the state government during the time of the alleged fraud. And so the question is whether the the federal law that penalizes, that that criminalizes so-called honest services fraud could apply to him. And the Supreme Court said that we're not going to say absolutely it doesn't apply to private citizens. Um, there are cases where where it could, but in this case, the jury instructions basically made it too easy to convict th- this guy. Uh, the jury instructions were essentially outdated based on a, a ruling that had happened before a, a lot of intervening things happened in the law. And so the court uh, essentially set aside one aspect of his conviction, kicked the case back down to the lower court, and set a bit of a higher bar for somebody who might have a lot of influence in the government, but at least at the crucial time was not actually working as a government official. 
All right, Greg, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, we've entered the opinion season where the court is no longer hearing oral arguments and is focused totally on getting out those opinions. And there are a lot of them to get out now. Uh, What can we expect from the justices going forward? Well, we know we're getting more opinions on Thursday of next week. And probably every Thursday until uh, the end of June, the court will probably add some additional cases as well. As you indicated, we have 39 cases yet to go. Now, some of those may end up being only a single opinion because that includes, for example, both the North Carolina affirmative action case and the Harvard affirmative action case. And, you know, we may see, for example, the independent state legislature doctrine case, Moore versus Harper. That could go away. The court just got a whole bunch of, as we're, as we're uh, recording this on Thursday, the court today just got a whole a bunch more filings in that case, some arguing that the case is now moot because of a new decision out of the North Carolina Supreme Court. So that very big election case may, may go away this term. So we may not have 39 uh, opinions to talk about on, on this podcast, which is probably Probably a good thing for for our listeners because they can only ha- handle so much of me. <laughs> well, that's right. So with the change in format of the court, we're going to change the format of, of this podcast a little bit. And we'll be releasing these episodes on Fridays instead of Thursdays with uh, recaps by Greg and I of the opinions that we do get, whether they're 39 or fewer. And then we hope to bring on a guest to discuss a SCOTUS-related topic. So let us know if there are any topics out there that you want to hear more about. Today, we thought it'd be good to look back on oral arguments, which were different this term than in any other term in the court's history. And to do so, we have with us Daniel Geyser of Haynes and Boone. He has argued 15 cases before the Supreme Court, including two this term. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. So first thing I wanted to ask you about was a rather a memorable beginning to one of your arguments this term. Uh, when the term started, Kimberly and I talked about uh, we might want to be in the courtroom uh, pretty much all the time just in case there were protests that broke out. Uh, your case was not the one where we thought uh, that would happen, the case involving the Bank Secrecy Act, although I was there. What was it like for you when abortion rights protesters interrupted your argument? Well, you know, I thought it was a perfect fit for the Bank Secrecy Act. So we we actually were anticipating that. Uh, But uh, no, that was, you know, people always ask, do you you ever get questions uh, at argument that you didn't anticipate? Um, And the answer to that is extremely rarely. Um, But I I did not anticipate, you know, different people standing up behind you uh, with, uh, you know, to protest something else. Um, it, it kind of took a, a second to kind of register someone else's talking. Um, it's not coming from the bench. Um, it's actually coming from behind me. You know, you don't really know exactly what to do, but, uh, you know, after you've done enough arguments, you've encountered enough sort of strange situations, uh, you sort of think on your feet. I decided that trying to talk over them uh, wouldn't work. Uh, so I just sort of patiently waited and, uh, and tried to continue with the argument. And uh, our producer, David, here, will put in a clip of that. Uh, wait, no, that's not available because when the court posted the audio of it, um, it sort of took that out. So I was not in the courtroom that day. That that was the one Greg had assigned to be in just in case. And so um, how long did that protest take? You know, I think each statement probably lasted about five to 10 seconds. It, it wasn't very long. Um, I, I think the protesters were trying to be as respectful as you can when you're interrupting uh you know, a formal court <laughs> session in violation of federal law. Uh, but, uh, 
But the, I think the most distracting element of it, there were three separate protesters who each waited a few seconds before then, uh, you know, starting up with the next one. Uh, so by by the third one, I was thinking, I wonder how many people are in the audience today, because <laughs> uh, this could take quite a while. But, uh, but a- after three, it stopped, and uh, and I, I almost felt kind of guilty when I saw uh, the press release um, that they had been sentenced, and I think it said something about you know, interrupted an attorney while, while arguing. And I'm like, I guess I'm the victim in this. And uh, <laughs> yet I don't really feel like it. And I, I'm like, I'm very sorry if, if anything bad happened to them because of it. Uh, but, uh, but, but the court sessions do work sort of better when uh, people from the audience aren't contributing to the conversation. Uh, so I think uh, ho- hopefully we won't see that again uh, anytime soon. So your first argument was in 2016. I think that's right. Um, can you tell us, I mean, this is a really big question, but how have arguments changed since then? Well, you know, they, they've changed pretty dramatically, you know, in the past couple of terms. Um, obviously, they were very different uh, during COVID with the telephonic arguments. Um, I think the court came up with the, the most sensible you know, procedure for holding arguments remotely as they possibly could. Um, I mean, unless you're going to have a, a Zoom uh, sort of call. Uh, you just can't have, you know, nine different people trying to talk on a telephone with no visual cues about when someone's ready or not ready. And so, you know, now we have this sort of hybrid procedure that, that I actually think in many ways is the best of both worlds. Um, the nice thing about giving each justice sort of an uninterrupted stretch to ask questions is that when you get to the end of an argument, you've done the free-for-all. If someone really has important questions that they haven't had a chance to fit in. And sometimes that happens. Um, you know, the best arguments are the ones where someone asks a question and you give an answer and then another justice builds on that answer and you really dive deep into the issue to the point where everyone understands that either this test or standard, it has you know, articulable limits that hold up under, under pressure or, or it doesn't. Uh, and, but sometimes it's hard to break in with a new topic. And especially back when, uh, you know, it was Chief Justice Rehnquist, who sort of would famously cut off people mid-syllable, you know, this, the very millisecond the argument was over, uh, you know, it, it really made it hard, I think, for different justices to get in some really important, uh, you know, lines of inquiry. And I think now we, we see that. Now, you know, the arguments are going, you know, extremely long. Uh, I haven't had any of the, you know, the marathon, you know, three, four-hour sessions um, I feel for the people who who are trying to stand on their feet for that long, but uh, but when you're up there, you know, normally even when it was thirty minutes, uh, you know, it feels like two or three. Maybe the three hour session feels like an actual thirty minute argument. Um, I, I I don't know how gravity works in the Supreme Court, but uh, <laughs> but I assume it's something like that. So I I could see two different reactions from the advocate standpoint to these longer arguments. One would be, especially for the people who are, you know, in those marathon arguments, the, oh my God, I'm exhausted after this. It's gone on for so long. And the other might be, hey, I finally had a chance to to, to say everything that I wanted to say here. Uh, you're nodding your head right now. It, 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 do you have more of the latter reaction? You know, I, I think it's a bit mixed because, you know, the, the sort of the fun and the challenge of argument prep is understanding that this is a very compressed period and you will have justices even now, you know, interrupting you and changing the subject uh, sometimes after only one or two points. So it's really about prioritizing your substantive arguments. You know, what, this is a really important line, a question or a really important hypothetical that you can anticipate. You know, what are the, what are the very best substantive arguments you can make in response to that? And what's the most effective order 
in which to make those points. So normally I feel like when you're getting those questions on the different areas, like, you know, here's a question about this part of the text that's hard or the, or the per- statutory purpose that might be challenging or the structure or the context, uh, you kind of get out your top line arguments if you're, if you're doing it the way you want to be doing it, um, you know, even in the shorter period. Um, now, when it does extend longer, you do sort of get to the sort of subsidiary points that, um, you know, normally in a 30-minute argument, you might not reach. And that is kind of nice. Um, but I think the best part is just that the justices get to ask those questions um, because every once in a while you do get a question sort of at the tail end of an argument um, that is important. And um, you, you're, you're very grateful that you get a chance to sort of give your take on this uh, before the justices sort of you know, disappear behind the curtains and then that's it. You don't get another chance to try to influence their thinking about the case. Um, so if, if they have something that they haven't exhausted, um, it's always nice to at least have a shot to try to, you know, give your best take on it and try to convince them that you're right. So now that uh, you all have returned to the courtroom for arguments, is there something behind the scenes that's changed that we don't see? I mean, are is there different protocols for getting your, your quill or something like that? You know, I don't think so. That, you know, there was the period um, right after the telephonic arguments where the public wasn't allowed in the courtroom, um, but the attorneys were. Um, that was a little different, um, especially at the end of the argument. It was sort of like, okay, great. It was, thank you for coming. Now get out. And it was kind of like, here's a side door. And like, we understood why. Like, they're not being disrespectful or rude. Like, they need you out of the building. Uh, and so I think I remember once, I actually think I might have ran into you, uh, Kimberly, at the end of uh, the Badger argument. Um, and it was sort of raining and we were out the side door and I'm like, just trying to regain my orientation because I have like one of the world's worst sense of direction. <laughs> I'm like, where am I again? Uh, and it's, it's a little easier when you're going down the front steps. Uh, but uh, other than that, I mean, this last term, I mean, it's basically been business as usual. I think the biggest change um, I think that I've noticed is that uh, the, the court used to charge uh, quarters for the lockers, and the lockers are now free. Now, don't take my word for that, because maybe it'll change next term, and I don't want someone showing up without a quarter and being like, you said the lockers were free. Um, but it used to be always a thrill to remember to bring quarters, uh, and, and now I think you don't have to do that. So I, I think the court's budget request was a good deal bigger th- this year, and maybe, maybe we uncovered the actual reason for that. Um, Dad, um, before the pandemic, the court implemented something at the beginning of arguments that gave advocates two minutes. We won't interrupt you. We promise. Just given how long arguments are going on now, do you do you, does that two minute period still a useful thing for you? You know, I, I'm in the minority on this topic, and I, I've I, I sort of disagree with most people I talk with about it. Um, I don't like any uninterrupted time at the beginning. Uh, the the way I look at it is whether it's 30 minutes or they hold you over for two hours. That is a limited time you have with the court. This is your chance to convince them. Um, I've already said everything I've thought about the case in my briefs. Um, and especially when you're topside, you know, often the introduction to the reply is sort of the introduction to the argument. I mean, that's where you're, you're drilling down the case to its bare essentials. This is sort of the irreducible core of why I think I'm right. Um, and often I find when I'm trying to figure out what to say in the opening, it's like, well, I've already said this sort of in the summary of argument in the, in the opening brief, you know, the introduction of the reply brief. And I don't want to sit up there and just read it. Uh, uh, so you're, you're sort of trying to think of another way to say something that you've hopefully, you know, optimally said in the briefs. Um, now, when you're bottom side, that could be a little different. Every once in a while, 
you know, a petitioner will come up with sort of a new argument um, in the reply brief. And this would give you, you a chance in sort of an uninterrupted stretch to have your first take on why that argument isn't right. Um, but even then, generally, when it's bottom side, you know, the court's been going for at least, you know, about 30 minutes. You kind of want to pick up the case where the conversation is and not sort of look like you were gone for the first 30 minutes and didn't realize like, oh, there's already been a conversation going. Uh, so, I mean, I tend to like to sort of tailor an introduction, even at, at the bottom side when you're respondent, um, that kind of just picks up where the conversation is, hitting points that seem relevant, you know, from the top side instead of having something scripted. So I, I noticed that, uh, I think it was yesterday, friend of the podcast, Adam Feldman over at Empirical SCOTUS noted that the three liberal justices had spoken the most during oral arguments this term. And I'm wondering, now that arguments are going on longer, forever um, as somebody who has to sit there without any communication to the outside world. Um, are though, are we going to start seeing more effects from the oral arguments on the opinions? I mean, are we going to, is it really going to change the outcome in any of these cases or are we just sort of making me sit there without water for five hours? Because <laughs> you all get water, but we do not. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you regret having too much water uh, if it goes too long. But, uh, you know, I, I, th that's a terrific question, and, and, the, and I'm not really sure the answer. Um, you know, the, the arguments serve sort of different purposes. You know, one purpose is sort of information gathering. Um, you know, it's really testing the limits of an advocate's theory. You know, does this work? Does it not work? The other purpose, obviously, is trying to convince the other justices. If you come into the, if a, if a justice comes into the argument with a pretty, you know, defined idea of how they view the case, uh, they want to see if they can convince the the other members of the court, you know, in sort of the court's first formal discussion, you know, of the issues. I mean, I remember Justice Breyer used to constantly ask questions. And then immediately sort of look to his left and look to his right, sort of nodding and like seeing like, how did that question register? Does everyone agree? <laughs> um, and you know, the answer is normally like, well, we don't know what like a spotted leopard who lives on Mars would actually think about that statute. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, you know, he it's justices, are, I think, are doing this for different reasons. And sometimes I think it could affect the opinion um, when a justice is trying to float sort of a narrower way to decide a case. Um, that might not have the same sort of reverberations in the law that a very broad way of deciding the case would have. And so I think if sort of the members on the left of the court are talking more, it, it could be a product of trying to see, you know, what sort of levels of compromise are available. Maybe we can steer the conversation in a certain direction where even if we can't win, uh, we can at least have sort of a loss that's a little more palatable from from how you know one member of the court might view the law. Does this format create any unfairness for one side or the other? And I'm thinking in part, um, there have been a number of arguments where um, the the justices spent much more time with the lawyers on the top side than on the bottom side. Don't know if they were just exhausted by the end of it, or or something else was going on and. Uh, I haven't seen the overall numbers to know whether that's that's you know a a, a clear trend, but I do wonder whether uh, sort of the the dynamic of who has the upper hand changes because of, of these these especially long arguments. You know, yeah, another terrific question, and uh, and another one that I'm not totally sure I know the answer. Uh, I do think it's possible that after the justices have sort of exhausted, you know, an, an hour hour and a half stretch. You know, especially when you have sort of the government as amicus supporting, you know, the topside party. Um, I mean, 
it's like it's like past lunchtime and you haven't heard a word from the respondents. Uh, so uh, I, I do think in those cases, in theory, it could affect um, a little bit of the responsibility to sort of, you know, have the same airtime. Uh, but again, I think if you've prepared the case the right way, you're ready to answer the, the, the hardest questions, you know, with the top line answers. And you should have your main points out, even if they decide, you know what, it's time for lunch. We're going to give you 15 minutes instead of 30. Um, you know, ideally, you can still hit the main points that you might need to hit. Um, and I do think at some point, uh, you do sort of get diminishing returns um, in some of these arguments. You know, again, it's, it's great for the justices to get to air those questions that you just can't quite fit in. Um, the ones that I think go so long that the respondents aren't really getting you know, what kind of looks like equal time. I think those are ones where the the top side period maybe gets to a point where it gets a little repetitive or you're hearing things that, that aren't necessarily um, either new or, or really directly questions as opposed to sort of floating, you know, d- different ideas on how a, a certain member of the court might approach the, the case. So my last question has to do with cameras in the courtroom. And one of the concerns we've heard from the justices, um, you know, across the ideological spectrum and across time is that no way are cameras in the courtroom coming in because they fear that um, maybe some of the justices, maybe some of the attorneys, of course, not you would do some showboating or grandstanding to people outside of the courtroom. And wondering if you think that's happened um, with the live stream that's happened now. And if not, if you think that that's going to nudge them in the direction of cameras, or is that that's never going to happen? You know, my, my guess is at least with, with, you know, the current court, it's not going to happen just given um, I, I don't know if I've heard a single justice really come out strongly in favor of it. Um, I can't remember what Justice Jackson said about it um, during her confirmation hearings, but I also know some justices have sort of expressed a willingness to keep an open mind. And then after a year or two on the court, they're like, absolutely no way. Um, now with the live streams, I can't really think of an argument where I would say someone was grandstanding. I mean, every time you show up at the court, it's such a privilege. I mean, you're so lucky to play a part of the process, and I think people take it very seriously. And I think someone who's going to try to grandstand, you know, for a a good audio clip, um, they're going to grandstand whether it's a live stream or or not, because they're they're just counting down the minutes until, you know, in the old days, the the audio would be released on Friday afternoon, and then they have their, their exciting clip. Um, so I, I think people take the the process seriously. I think having a video, I'm not sure would change that. Um, maybe people would come with like uh, I, I don't know more, more interesting looking suits uh, <laughs> or something. But uh, but other than that, I can't I can't really think how it would change uh, the dynamic of the argument. Um, but I can understand why why the justices would rather keep it uh, you know the, the way it's been working uh, pretty well in the past. Dan, last thing for me, Supreme Court arguments are, are a little bit like Major League Baseball the last few years. Every year they institute a whole bunch of new rules. <laughs> are, there any, are there any rule changes that seem to you to be you know, reasonable possibilities for, for next term? Well, uh, you know, I think the pitch clock is great and the, the size of the bases <laughs> are, are an improvement. Uh, oh, that's not what you're asking. Okay. Uh, no, I, you know, I, I don't know if they are going to change it. I mean, I could see, I think it depends on how the court views these really, really extended, um, arguments. Um, if that's creating sort of 
any discomfort among members of the court. I could see um, them fiddling with different ideas on how to sort of rein it in and keep it a little more, you know, focused or, or some outer time limit. And I'm not sure exactly how they best would implement that other than the chief just sort of being a little more stern, um, kind of the way, and I don't mean stern in a bad way. I just mean in like in a necessary way, sort of the referee, um, just like during the pandemic, um, with the telephonic arguments where at some point the chief did have to keep time and say like, okay, I'm, I'm moving on. Uh, and so, uh, other than that, I think it will be pr- pretty similar. Um, the, the best I can tell the court likes, I mean, to give up the free for all, I think would be a huge shame. I think that's the most important part of the argument. Um, and the Adam questioning again, adds a lot because, most of the justices who have – they've exhausted their questions. They don't ask questions. Uh, you know, sometimes you see the chief. He almost – it almost looks like a rapid-fire tennis match, like looking to his left and right as he goes <laughs> down the line uh, with no one having any other questions. But if someone really has something important to ask, um, I've heard some really fantastic questions come out in that period. Uh, I think it would be a shame to lose it, and I think the justices, I'm guessing, look at it the same way. All right. Well, thank you so much for giving a, an inside baseball look. See what I did there, guys. <laughs> oh, well done. No, it's my pleasure. This, this was a lot of fun. And again, it's a, it was a privilege to be here. All right. Well, it, that was great having Dan on. Um, glad that there are no new rules about getting your quill. For those listeners who may not know, the reference is to a little souvenir that the justices give out, or at least the court gives out to advocates, a little feather pen. All right. Well, the court is presumably dipping its quill in some more ink to do up some more opinions and we will be back with those next week until then you can follow along with all the latest supreme court news at news.bloomberglaw.com hello podcast listeners if you don't already know on the merits our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news it's a show that features the very best of bloomberg law and bloomberg government Newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts. <laughs>